Hello, this is the Kind Mind Podcast. Thank you for listening today. A quick update. I'm making all the episodes available to download for free on my website. So you're welcome to grab the MP3 audio if you'd like to create your own content and clips with it. If you'd like the track without any of the ambient background music so you can pair with your own sounds, just contact me and we can have that version sent to you. It would be great if you can credit the podcast or tag at Michael Todd Fink on social media if you do share something so others can find us here. Today's episode is about prayer and praying power. Prayer is difficult to define as it's personal and or collective or cultural and often socialized. In Christian traditions, it might be intercessory or petitionary, but so also as with other religions, even sects of Hinduism or Buddhism, without the primacy of deities, there may be formulaic, repetitive prayer rituals like mantras or japa with malas or rosaries. Furthermore, there's a significant percentage of the population without any religious affiliation that still report that they pray sometimes, or somewhat regularly. So too those who don't know if they believe in God. Most theistic religions, to be an active member, require some amount of individual and collective worship which involves praying. They also encourage informal conversational prayer. So all this is to emphasize the spectrum and limitations or challenges with defining and therefore designing scientific studies of the phenomenon of prayer and measurement of outcomes. Many other flaws can be hard to manage with this, including biases such as selection bias and cognitive heuristics with self-reporting. However, that has not stopped researchers from trying for the past few hundred years. I'd like to share a few salient findings. Let's start with the versions of prayer centered on divine intervention. A 2006 study by Carey and published in the New York Times indicated that prayer had no discernible effects on the condition of cardiac bypass patients. Now, this point might seem humorous, but a reason why many philosophers and skeptics might say that prayer isn't really in the realm of scientific study is because of the inherent subjectivity and problems with empirical analysis, and if statistical inference and falsifiability is even enough to prove or disprove anything. For example, how can investigators really know how sincerely one is praying, or the true duration of a prayer, or if one was even praying at all? And if prayer were to quote-unquote work, would it need to be that specific prayer and that kind of result? Or are there other variables difficult to account for, like a devotee's degree of faith 
Or could results be attributable to a reserve of good karma? So that was just one example, but there's such a wide range of health circumstances to pray for help with on one's own or another's behalf. And if it were to be effective, where on that efficacy continuum would this focused mental energy of prayer move the needle, so to speak? What would be the range from, let's say, reducing pain or the common cold on one end all the way to feats like delaying or curing terminal illness? Some studies involve informing the patient that they are being prayed for or monitoring biological changes while groups pray over the patient. But think about what happens when one discovers that others are praying for them while in the hospital. That might be comforting or even serve as a placebo, or just the opposite. Like, holy shit, the prognosis must be really bad if everyone's praying for me. And then that could trigger stress or despair. Most other studies towards this end suggest no difference or very small positive difference or mixed results at best. However, psychological research consistently suggests that the one who prays does actually benefit. In the Bernardi study in the British Medical Journal in 2001, it asserted that cardiac patients praying the rosary or yoga mantras at specific rates and intervals had a positive demonstrable effect on homeostatic mechanisms that regulate blood pressure. Other studies with students who pray reported improved mental and physical wellness. More recently, the Pew Research Center in the United States conducted quantitative analyses of the frequency of prayer. And if this topic's is interesting to you, it would be worth looking up and diving into their religious landscape study. It reveals not only the rate, but the demographics of prayer in America. I think it also underscores the innocuous history of power, privilege, race, and oppression in our nation. But to summarize... First off, the majority of adults pray. 55% report that they pray daily. And the surveys have shown that, generally speaking, older people tend to pray more frequently compared to younger individuals, with the highest percentage being among the 30 to 49-year-old group. Women tend to pray more frequently than men, and they also view prayer as a more important aspect of their spiritual lives. People with lower levels of formal education are more likely to pray regularly compared to those with higher levels of formal education. The frequency of prayer is also highly influenced by one's religious affiliation. For example, people who identify as Muslim or Evangelical Christian tend to pray more frequently than those who identify as atheist or agnostic. 
Jehovah's Witness comes in at 90%. That's the percentage among that group who report praying daily. Whereas among Jewish, it's 29%, and Buddhism and Hinduism is somewhere in the middle. People living in rural areas are more likely to pray regularly compared to those living in urban areas. People with lower incomes tend to pray more frequently than those with higher incomes. And people with conservative political beliefs tend to pray more frequently than those with liberal political beliefs. But there's not a stark difference there. Those who identify as black pray more than those who identify as white, 73% daily compared to 52% daily prayers. Other race and ethnicities that pray more include Latino and those who are multiracial. And keep in mind, these are general trends and may not apply to all individuals and communities. But a picture emerges as well as opportunities for further investigation. Overall, those who enjoy more privilege pray less. So on the one hand, from an efficacy of prayer standpoint, if they don't pray as much, why are they better off? Alternatively, does their privilege contribute to a sense of entitlement or personal pride and overestimation of one's abilities? Or does it simply suggest that the most common prayer is petitionary prayer and therefore those without need do not feel the need to pray? I don't think the sociological breakdown is coincidental. When you consider that marginalized groups, women, people of color, lower income, and those with less economic opportunity report higher frequency of prayer, well, it may suggest that praying is a way to cope and cultivate spiritual solace while facing higher probabilities of enduring prejudice and discrimination. Something else to think about, is prayer a natural response, representing our innate resilience and a manifestation of transcendent optimism, when there may not be much one can do to overcome systemic barriers? Well, in this episode, I share reflections and metaphors for the affirmative prayer based on something that Ernest Holmes wrote and I try to share wisdom about the inner life of the mystic, exploring how prayer in any form can facilitate the requisite introspection and lead to meditative experiences and maybe outward transformation as well. This was recorded at Spiritual Speakeasy Community, which is a weekly worldwide online gathering of people who are spiritual and curious, but not necessarily religious. So I enjoy connecting as our conversations are always open and respectful. And you can register to attend on their website if you're interested. This year, I will be presenting on every third Sunday of each month. So I hope you enjoy this talk and I humbly pray for the well-being of the earth and all her inhabitants, especially the sick, the dying, the poor, the hungry, the lonely, the afraid incarcerated, the war-torn, the grieving, the oppressed, and disadvantaged, and anyone or any life that is suffering. (music) 
thank you again for listening. to offer these reflections on prayer because you're a prayerful community so you know a lot about it nina thank you for connecting uh, us to our breath it reminds me of a passage in in the bible where jesus says pray continuously how can a person pray continuously we have to work uh, we have to meet our responsibilities with family if you're a parent you have children the breath is the way, I think, to pray continuously. If we think of our breath as a prayer in itself, because prayer doesn't always have to have words, every inhalation is a new life, is a, is a miracle. And we don't have to pay attention to it. Among all the visceral processes and metabolic processes in the body, breath is unique because it operates with a dual mechanism. It can either be controlled in the base of our brain in the medulla unconsciously or when we do it consciously our cortex lights up and we have a totally different kind of experience in the present moment and the reflections i want to share are somewhat based on the affirmative prayer as inspired by ernest holmes a purpose statement why would somebody want to pray because there, there's some motivational energy the recognition of a higher power however you conceptualize that meaning that we look beyond ourselves because we want to connect with something greater. We have a sense that uh, there's a power beyond ourselves that can intervene or that can co-author life with us. The unification means that we're not totally separate from that power, although we experience Life is a sort of optical delusion where we see ourselves as totally independent and individual. However, that is due to the limitations of our senses. In deeper prayer and deeper meditation, those artificial boundaries recede like a river meeting the ocean and merging into oneness. And then affirmation is how we direct that energy of being united with that energy towards the goodness that motivated our prayer in the first place. The thanksgiving that you described means that we feel in our heart all things are already done as according to the will of that power. And so the, the actual art of prayer is, is almost like a ritual that celebrates the goodness that's always there, but sometimes we forget it. And the release, which I'm going to focus on today, is that letting go. And I call it talk the peace of release because this is really when we get to recline back into the knowing that everything is all right. This also reminds me a little bit of the Yoga Sutras. If you're familiar with yoga philosophy, or if you practice yoga in a studio, you know the posture of yoga that's called Yogasana. There's also eight limbs outlined in this book, the Yoga Sutras, which are also like a recipe and also very much like this arc of prayer. You have the two in the beginning about ethical principles, yama and niyama, which I love because if a person just went for prayer and meditation without doing some work on himself, we might not be in tune with what's wise. 
just wanting things out of selfishness is not going to be helpful for us or the community in the long run. So getting in tune with nonviolence, uh, avoiding greed, avoiding stealing, sort of like the Ten Commandments in the Bible, but the Ten Commandments of yoga are the yamas and niyamas, and they're about purifying our consciousness and, and our uh, desires. Then you have the asana, which is the posture. And if you think about prayer and the affirmative prayer, there is some posture to prayer. It's nice if you can be seated or if you can be in a position where you can be still because the uh, the stiller you are, the slower you go, the more you can perceive, the quieter we are, the more we can hear, as Rumi said. In a kitchen, there's some precepts before you would cook. You need to make sure the pans are clean, the utensils are clean. You might lay out the tools that you're going to use. So there's some discipline involved. And then there's the posture of cooking, how you're going to wear the apron, perhaps, or how you're going to lay out the ingredients and get everything ready. The next limb of yoga is pranaya, which is like our breathing. You probably wouldn't be cooking your own meal if you were emotionally distraught. Maybe before we would sit down, we would get our energy a little bit more balanced. There's a saying in different Asian and Eastern philosophies that the vibrations that we're experiencing emotionally go into the food that we prepare. And so there's a subtle effect of any food that we eat. That's why it's worth being mindful of how food is prepared. Where did it come from? Was it done in an ethical manner? Was it prepared in a loving manner? And whenever we're preparing food, especially for others, it's important to try to put loving vibrations into the process. But pranayama is breath control in yoga. So in the the analogy of the kitchen, a person ought to be a little bit centered, a little bit grounded. Pratyahara is the next limb, and that means withdrawing the senses or turning the senses inward to prepare for meditation. When you're going to pray or you're going to prepare a meal, you have to start to tune out other distractions. You have to focus on what you're doing, especially something like baking, because there's not a lot of room for error, flexibility there. When you're making soup, that's what I prefer to make. I just keep adding more water or, you know, just take whatever vegetables are left over, put it all in the pot and make a stew. But a lot of forms of cooking require some focus and tuning out distraction. That's what pratyahara means. Dharana is the next one and it means concentrating. So now we have to focus on what we're doing when we're cooking. So in the, in the affirmative prayer, you start to focus on higher power within. And then dhyana in yoga means meditation. Meditation is like the unification and affirmation of the prayer arc where a person is feeling the oneness of God or the universe. This is also when you've reached a point in the cooking where you no longer have to do anything, but it's not finished. When right. everything is prepared, placed on the stove or placed in the oven, that's when you release your involvement. And now fire or the elements are doing the work. So there's a peacefulness that comes about in this stage of the process. Maybe a person relaxes or sits down and waits. But there is one more step in yoga, and this would be maybe a seventh blessing in the affirmative prayer, and that's samadhi, 
in yoga, which means the bliss that comes from the unity with the divine. And you could think of this as the moment when the food is ready, the joy that comes from eating and the bliss of the preparation, the bliss of being able to share food with one another. So I'm just going to give a few other reflections on release and prayer. The word prayer has roots in Latin, prakare, and prior to that in Sanskrit, prachari or prachati, and this root sound of Proto-Indo-European languages is prek, P-R-E-K. And it meant to inquire or to ask or to investigate, which is beautiful because the motivation behind the prayer ought to be seeking. We're seeking the source. We're seeking the higher power through any means that we have, breath, crying, using language, using a mantra, using words that we've learned, using a formula. There's all different ways that we go inward to try to find solace through the higher power. Prek. It becomes other words like precarious. Precarious means a situation where you recognize that you're not in complete control and you can fail at any moment. Now, there are times in life where we're in trouble, and that's often when people really turn to a higher power. If you've ever been on a plane and you hit a rough patch of turbulence, suddenly everybody closes their laptop and they become religious and start praying because they feel the situation is precarious. We get anxiety on a plane because it's so obvious we're not in control. And yet it's not unlike any other moment in life. There is no guarantee that the next breath will come. That's why every breath is a miracle because nobody knows when the last breath is. Therefore, your next breath is another opportunity to be prayerful. So this is prek, this is prayer. Precarious means it's another opportunity to remember the divine. And if we are a little bit more curious, we'll recognize that we're, we're always in a precarious situation. Everything can fail at any moment. It was always like walking a tightrope through this life. But that's all right, because it can keep us tuned in to that which is before we came to this world and that which is which is after. There's a, a sect of Krishna devotees in ancient times that asked to be blessed with troubles, to be in precarious situations all the time so that they wouldn't forget Krishna when he departed. Meaning, it's hard to remember God or your higher power when things are good. This is the real risk of success and happiness is that a person can feel pride and pride is not very different than shame. They're both like psychological knots that cut us off from the circulation with the universe, with the whole. I'm also interested in the, the science of prayer, but not so much its effect on healing and there's mixed results on these kind of studies when you pray for somebody to get well. I'm not so interested in that because that's such a limited limited way to think about prayer in time and space. So I'm, I'm a little bit more curious about what's going on in the brain when somebody is prayerful. And there's an, a neuroscientist, Andy Newberg, who's been studying this for decades. And 
he likes to scan the brains of prayer virtuosos, so to speak. So an example of this is a pastor named Scott McDermott from United Methodist Church who prays more than two hours a day, and he's done this for over 25 years. So he met with Dr. Newberg, and Dr. Newberg injected him with a dye to see where activity happens in the brain when he reaches the peak experience of his prayer. So he lets the doctor know, and then the doctor's recording what's the activity in the brain. And as suspected, there is a lot of activity in the prefrontal cortex, which is involved with concentration and focus. But then, as reflected in the affirmative prayer of unification, the parietal lobe goes dark. And what this means is that a person deep in prayer or meditation loses their sense of position in time and space. So the brain may not be so much the origin of our consciousness and individuality. It might be more like a hub, like a phone, like a receiver to the cloud. And so the brain gives us the experience that we're separate from God or from the whole or from the universe. And when that part goes dark, the person no longer feels that those limiting boundaries, like me ending where my skin is, but an expansion of our sense of self. So we go from the small S to the big S, which is unification. And then eventually that can dissipate as a person regains their, their normal consciousness. If you've ever had a chance to see this book called The Varieties of Religious Experience, this was written 120 years ago, or published 120 years ago by the father of American psychology, William James. He goes a little bit deeper into uh, the definition of prayer. And I find his descriptions to be very profound to this day. And it also gives an indication why it's not necessary to study prayer in terms of do people get what they want in a timely manner because he's recognizing that this is just the smallest aspect of prayer. So I want to share a few of his entries into that work. Petitional prayer is only one department of prayer. And if we take the word in the wider sense as meaning every kind of inward communion or conversation with the power recognized as divine, we can easily see that scientific criticism leaves it untouched. Prayer in this wide sense is the very soul and essence of religion. Religion, says a liberal French theologian, is an intercourse, a conscious and voluntary relation entered into by a soul in distress, with the mysterious power upon which it feels itself to depend and upon which its fate is contingent. This intercourse with God is realized by prayer. Prayer is religion in act. That is, prayer is real religion. It is prayer that distinguishes the religious phenomenon from such similar or neighboring phenomenon as purely moral or aesthetic sentiment. Religion is nothing if it be not the vital act by which the mind seeks to save itself by clinging to the principle from which it draws its life. This act is prayer, by which term I understand no vain exercise of words, not mere repetition of a certain sacred formula, but the very movement itself of the soul. 
putting itself in a personal relation of contact with the mysterious power of which it feels the presence. It may be even before it has a name by which to call it. Wherever this interior prayer is lacking, there is no religion. Wherever, on the other hand, this prayer rises and stirs the soul, even in the absence of forms or of doctrines, we have living religion. And then one other thought here. Through prayer, religion insists things which cannot be realized in any other manner come about. Energy which but for prayer would be bound is by prayer set free and operates in some part, be it objective or subjective, of the world of facts. This is what it's like to be in deeper meditation, to have so much ease that there are no longer differentiations between me and this person. And you can merge into that oneness and it's healing, it's liberating because the weight of being an individual becomes a difficult burden to carry. Our story, our history, and in meditation and in deep prayer, we're reminded, we're reunited with the whole. And that is why the word religion is what it is, because it means, again, re, religare, reunion, reunite. That is the motivation to begin with, with prayer, to find our source, to reconnect our source, to beg our source to come be with us. So I'll conclude with a prayer from Rumi that I think summarizes this better than I could. I prayed for change, so I changed my mind. I prayed for guidance and learned to trust myself. I prayed for happiness and realized I am not my ego. I prayed for peace and learned to accept others unconditionally. I prayed for abundance and realized my doubt kept it out. I prayed for wealth and realized it is my health. I prayed for a miracle and realized I am the miracle. I prayed for a soulmate and realized I am the one. I prayed for love and realized it's always knocking, but I have to allow it in. Thank you so much, everybody. I'm happy to be here with you all and looking forward to our conversation. I, you know, really just want to open it up knowing that you so beautifully melded yoga, cooking, prayer, and neuroscience in all different ways that we can begin to release and to let go and find peace in that space of release. And if I can kick us off, one of the things, of the many things I wrote down was when you mentioned prayer doesn't always have to have words. And that was one of the first things that stuck out for me. And I'm just wondering if in this space of release and finding peace in that, if you could touch on that a little bit more. Thank you, Kate. Well, the first thing that comes to my mind is that we don't have language in the beginning, but we still cry out for a power greater than ourselves, whether it's our mother or parent. So we instinctively know to cry. I think that still happens to us when everything seems to fail tears might spontaneously become our prayer. So there's an energy within us that's moving and, and words would probably be like its crudest form, I would, I would imagine. But that's why um, I think the breath is, is a powerful tool.
tool to remind us that life is dynamic. A better way to put this is religion is a language in itself. Now, we're all born into some kind of religious or philosophical worldview, and we, we all have a mother tongue. You may go on to speak other languages, just as you may go on, like myself, to learn about other spiritual traditions. If you understand religion as a language, you know, by definition, it is incomplete because language is just symbols. But that doesn't matter because nobody really worries so much about the one language. We know language is the tool for connecting and religion is the tool to go back to the source. So words may help with that, but there's many other, many other ways that we might call out. There was a, a, a great mystic of the 20th century, one of the most famous modern saints of India, Ramakrishna Paramahamsa. And he said the fastest way to liberation is to cry for God for three days straight. And he recommend, recommended it to some people because he was saying, forget about all the austerities and everything like that. If you really want, if you need it now, just start crying and do not stop for three days and God or the Divine Mother will have to come to you. Just like if, if the baby is crying, the mother has to stop what she's doing to pick up the child. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, such a helpful analogy. Thank you. Irene. Hi. Todd, I really appreciated what you said. It was very expansive. And I have to say, well, first of all, you talk about cooking and that bing, bing, bing. I love to cook. And yeah, I can get really into a groove with that. But I have to say, I'm in the um, prayer class right now. And I feel the movement of the energy. But it just builds up. And it's a new experience for me. And it's just amazing. So I, I just really want to thank um, yeah, your insights towards that and, and just this prayer class that we have and this experience that I'm going through. And I really, I don't know, I had no idea prayer could be so physical. You know, it's just, mm -hmm. I feel the energy. It's amazing. And it changes me. Thank you, Irene, for sharing that. Another way to realize this, like with the breath, is to feel as though your life energy is a fire inside of the head, in the soul center, in the third eye, and every breath is going right into that flame. So it's providing the oxygen to keep life going. If the oxygen doesn't come, the fire goes out. But if you breathe consciously, you actually feel it stimulating the life force in a subtle way. With more and more quiet and stillness, it'll feel you'll feel that fire going like this, vibrating through your whole being, and not just within the physical form, but radiating outward. And that becomes the energy that connects us to all life. So, yeah, thank you for sharing that. Hi, Todd. I just was curious your take on on ceremony rituals sim symbols in form that either support or detract or just what your feeling on that might be um, i think religion probably in its purest form is when it's motivated by that the stirring of the soul so to force somebody into a, a ritual or a prayerful situation as a formality like i can think of many times being in church 
against my my will. If it was up to me, I would be playing or something on a Sunday. So there wasn't always deep religious experiences in those circumstances. However, at the same time, people have uh, feel profound love on festivals, um, on holy days, or or those can really be useful in remembering our higher power or remembering what we love about the gift of life. I think they're useful. They may be thought of as a starting point for some people. When they're too organized, they can lose the the spirit of the of the ritual. I did a podcast called When Ritual is Spiritual. And these two words are so close. The word spiritual contains the word ritual. But I, I hypothesize that the S and the P and the I are soul, peace, and intention. There's soulfulness and there's a, a, a deep sense of stillness or quiet or peacefulness. And one is directing the, their energy in an intentional way. Then whatever the ritual is will be spiritual, whether it's a formal, ancient, handed down practice or whether it's something that somebody just make, makes up that is meaningful to them. There's other neuroscience that shows that people do form their own rituals and it has a profound healing effect on the brain. It's anxiolytic, which means it really helps mitigate anxiety disorders. So rituals can be inherited and we can also create them. I think it's important to find that time of ritual to be beautiful, not something you dread doing, but something you can't wait to do. So it depends on what kind of person you are. If you like being outside, if you like nature, if you like art or architecture, if you're more of an auditory learner, it might be music or some sound, you know, but if we look forward to it and that is our time to go within and to connect with, with our power, then uh, that ritual will definitely be spiritual. Thank you. And a very good afternoon. Yeah, calling in from Ireland. Todd, thank you for that. I, I, have a, I have a theory, if I may, your sharing got me thinking about it, Todd, and it's to do with, it's to do with the difference between religion and spirituality. So you've clearly done the deep work and you've, you were born into a particular tradition as I understand it, and then you've explored other traditions. So my theory is that uh, religion as distinct to spirituality is, in its first instance, it's geographically based. So let me explain that. I, I'm Irish, born in Dublin in the 1960s, right? So the chances of me not being Catholic <laughs> were minuscule. You know, it was, it was a given. I was going to be brought up in the Catholic tradition, and I was, <clears throat> okay? If I had been born in Baghdad in 1963, you know, let's be honest here. My, my worldview, my spiritual view, my religious view would likely have been in very different, poles apart, okay? So it just gets me thinking, and I've, I've been thinking about this for some years now, so just to have you in the room and share as you did, that we've got to be careful, I think, of dictating to everybody that our religion is the one and only religion, because in my opinion, there is one God, and whether I refer to that God as Buddha or, you know, or, or, or the Lord uh, shouldn't really matter. Now, I could, I could be, I could be uh, removed from the church for this, right? Uh, but I'm, I'm just, I'm just sharing, I, I'm supposed to, I'm trying to spark conversation. Just imagine I was born in Baghdad instead of Dublin. 
I think it's fair to say I would have a very different uh, beginning of my spiritual journey. And that doesn't make one or the other right or wrong. That's my point. I think, that, you know, what, what Speakeasy is doing is bringing different perspectives together. And I think you, Todd, have, as I said, done the deep work to explore this. So I'm just curious, do you have a view on what I've, I've just brought to the conversation? Oh, yeah, you said it very well. There's a point, I think, in an aspirant's life where they realize what you just said. I think that's an important part of awakening that, oh, hey, if I wasn't born here, good chance I, I wouldn't have this view or I wouldn't have this language, you know? So that's why I think of it as a language. Now, within a language, there's grammar. And for some people, grammar is important. But it's not really important in terms of the goal of language, which is to connect. If through being grammatically correct, a person doesn't connect, what would be the point? I think of grammar like dogma. And there are scholars of grammar and not that that scholarly work is bad, just like there are scholars of religion. There's nothing wrong with that. Religion has history, it has architecture, it has music many beautiful things about it. But when that becomes a right way and wrong way to live or to uh, or, or one way to connect with the source or to seek the source, yeah, that, that's when problems arise. So I, I think you said it beautifully. And I just offer those analogies to help maybe help people awaken to it because it without being able to step outside of yourself it won't feel that way. I can recall in my life thinking, wow, it's amazing. I'm in the right religion. I was, you know, but I felt that with a lot of things. I'm speaking the best language. I, I'm in the right religion. I have the right God. I'm in the best country. All those thoughts, I think they're connected also to the pride and the individuality one feels with their sense of self. And it goes both ways. A person can feel that with anything that they feel successful about and they can also feel shame on the other side of it so that's what ego does it puffs a person up and then the smallest poke deflates the whole thing you know so better to slowly let the air out of the balloon of ego <laughs> and see things in a more open loving way so thank you colin yeah thank you todd thanks very much i was just gonna add one more thing to what colin said that yeah. i do think there's some interesting circuit that happens too where a person awakens to the the idea that there's many different ways to view the self and to try to connect or commune with god and then that ultimately i think brings a person back to a, a new kind of like love for their mother tongue or their original uh, religion if they had one because there's a sort of rejecting or rebellious period and even feeling like this is, you know, this is all, um, this is just all nonsense. But then a person I do think has a, a new kind of awakening to maybe the, the true spirit of whatever that original philosophy was, can see out all of the perversions, maybe see it in a, in a more, more uh, pure light. Yeah, th thank you. Here in Ireland in particular, we've uh, come out of a period known as the Troubles, which effectively was a civil war for 30 years in the north of our of our island. And the, the bitter irony of that civil war 
uh, was and, and still is today. I mean, the ramifications are still being felt today and there is underlying bitterness and hatred. I, I don't know will it ever disappear. Uh, and the irony of it is we're both, that both sides of the, the war um, are professed, professing to be Christian, right? And uh, are, are banging the drum and flying the flag on, you know, language differences between two sects of the one religion. And, you know, if you dig underneath all that, that's clearly rubbish, right? So it's, 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 the, it's the strangest thing. That, that's why, you know, you're, you're opening up the conversation today is very interesting. I like that idea of us rebelling, like we're, we're bold teenagers, you know, uh, questioning what we've been taught all these years. And I feel like a bit of a bold teenager here this afternoon, uh, uh, questioning my, my upbringing. I'm grateful for the fact that I was brought up in, in a tradition as opposed to no tradition, if that makes sense. Um, and that gives me a framework from which I can explore the rest. So I'm grateful for that. I, I, met, I met a guy, I met a guy, I'll finish on this. I met a guy uh, from, from the north of Ireland. I'm from the south and the civil war didn't really extend down here except the odd atrocity. Uh, but I met a guy from the north who was from the Protestant uh, camp, if you like. And uh, he said to me, what about you? And I said, well, I'm, I'm a practicing Catholic. And he had the most amazing response to that. He said, you keep practicing. He said, because someday if you practice hard enough, someday you might be good enough to be Protestant. <laughs> I thought it was just wonderful. Oh my gosh. <laughs> anyway, no, it, it was it was it was all said tongue in cheek, so it was good. All right, I leave you to it. Thanks, thanks for that, Todd. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, Colm. Hi. You know, I just uh, one of the things with Colm brought up. I know in the course it says there cannot be a universal curriculum, but there can be a universal experience. And I just wanted to point that out. Thanks. <laughs> thanks, John. I think that. That nicely connects with one of the questions in the chat box. To, um, with all these possible viewpoints, this can get exciting and overwhelming. Do you have a suggestion for how to stay open and also simplify and be in peace? So I love what John said about not a universal curriculum, but there can be a universal experience. Sort of like you think of a, a mountain, there can be unlimited ways up the mountain, but there's only one top of the mountain. And the view from the mountaintop would, would be the same for anybody. So, so there's another way to, to think of it, this. I, I think it does take a little bit of experimentation, at least at some point in a person's life. But things will feel natural and authentic. It's like you like what you like musically. People like certain kinds of You can't help if a, mu if a piece of music stirs you. And if something doesn't, it's hard to choose to have it do that for you. And I just think that it's just beautiful to see how that operates differently in different people. And that's what I think we, we ought to be like with each other. Whenever anybody is connecting or having a spiritual experience, it ought to make us rejoice. We should think of rejoice in that way, reconnecting to our own joy. Oh, this is working for you or you're finding peace this way or that path. It's caused for for happiness and celebration, even if we don't go that way. Because also at some point, if we're if our goal is to get to that unitive experience, then there's no need to keep going down the mountain to see if another path might be better or easier or, or, or whatever. Because if you keep going back down, you know, you never never get all the way to, to the top. So 
there was a, a the same saint that I was talking about before though did have a enlightenment experience as a Hindu and then wanted to experience uh, connecting in union with God again as a Christian he started praying the rosary until he felt complete ecstasy in love for Jesus and Mother Mary then he did it again as a Muslim and and like this after he had an enlightenment experience he he took on different religious personalities just to to be able to love his soulmate as he put it the divine mother in many different ways yeah thank you everybody brianna one last question here as we start to bring it home for the day what, what's on your mind oh you're, you're so sweet um thank you i just um as i listened to what todd was saying i was drawing which was really great and learning about prayer through his words and through breath and one of the things that i i was inspired by what you said it says to set free from the world of facts it was early in the talk i think you're talking mm -hmm. about direct and release of energy and um you know how maybe how prayer can have no words you know and so that was um you know that was something i was thinking about um is the world of facts like the ego that's a good question so I think what William James was saying there was there's almost no language for describing the re the religious unitive experience or the enlightenment experience or a mystical experience. But we do know that when we pray and when we connect and when we share fellowship like this in prayer, that something happens in the so-called world of facts, right? Isn't there something undeniable about how this energy, which seems within, does manifest outside? So there's that, but then yes, you're right. The world of facts is actually something of the ego because I'll have, have, ask you to contemplate on this. What can even be said to be a fact? What has remained a fact, you know? I think you're onto something, Brianna, that, that may actually be motivated by something illusory in us, something that feels separate and that all these facts are, are separate. But if, if we have a truer experience where everything is connected and everything is interrelated and everything is even one or none, because it's beyond one or two, well then, yeah, then then the world effects would, would be something that is like a mirage, let's say, or um, like a hologram. The hologram appears to have different buildings in it, but when you go to touch it, there's no parts. It's all one light. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.